I always like when Pastor Christopher does the offering before me because it gets good rhythm into my mind for communicating. I feel like it's almost criminal how subliminal all the things are that he was just saying. And I'm praying that I'll be able to keep up with the rhyming. The challenge oftentimes is the timing. I could keep going and keep flowing, but I'll take a pause because I know what you guys are knowing. In all seriousness though, I'm feeling very reflective today. If you haven't noticed, I have mirrors on my shoes. And also, it's uh, 16 years since I've been on staff this month. And I'm just thinking about, as we get ready to celebrate 16 year anniversary of being 24 seven, when I was 21 years old visiting this ministry for the first time, coming into the prayer room as a college student late at night, hearing one person on the keyboard worshiping the Lord. And I had been in anointed atmospheres of worship before. I'd been to places like Passion Conference where there's stadium gatherings of thousands of believers, worshiping God, hands lifted, crying out to him. And I remember what the presence of God felt like in those atmospheres that were charged with worship and passion. And what struck me as I was in that prayer room, I felt the presence of God in a stronger way with that one person on the keyboard pouring out their heart before the Lord in an empty room. And I can literally remember I had not seen many physical manifestations of God's kingdom before. And I hadn't seen things before in the spirit, but my, one of my very first times in the prayer, I remember looking across the room and seeing bright flashes of light across the room and having this impression that there were more angels in the room than there were people. And I said, God, I don't know what this place is where your presence dwells here so richly. I don't know what this place is that it feels like the heavens are open and angels are present in the atmosphere of worship. But I said, if you would grant for me to even spend a season here, I'll say yes. And I remember signing up at that time. It was a one-week internship. And I remember doing that one-week internship. And I didn't do the six-month internship. They had a six-month version at that time because you couldn't be dating. And I was dating my wife. And I was like, God ain't calling me to that. And uh, I would have, but I, I knew that this was the woman I was supposed to marry and that we weren't supposed to take a pause from the journey that we were on. And so I just came on, came on staff and, uh, and said, you know, I'm going to take the next six months to a year and just discern what the calling is that God has for me, me in ministry. And little did I know that six month season and then that one year season would turn into 16 years. Um, I don't actually normally share this, but I'll share it with you guys. You guys ready to hear a little secret? This is a little treasure of my heart. I'll just share it with you guys because I'm feeling reflective, as I said. Ka-chow, ka-chow. There's a Lightning McQueen reference for all the parents out there with kids my age. Um, so people oftentimes will ask me what my name means, Hazen, and it means different things in different languages. And so I'll give a different answer depending on how much I want to tell people about myself. But, um, but I remember someone telling me once, he was actually a, a Jewish rabbi, and he actually said your name uh, in Hebrew, Chazan, like they would say it that way in Hebrew. And he said, if your name was said in Hebrew, it would, it would mean the cantor, which a cantor is somebody who in the synagogue actually sings the scriptures. And I remember hearing that and at the time I was doing a bunch of sets here on the platform in the house of the Lord. And it was like, it's like a Levitical role. And I remember God saying, when 
my dad's name is Hazen, my grandfather's name is Hazen, but I remember him saying, you know, I chose you for a unique calling and I've known your calling your whole life. Even since your mother's womb, I saw you and I called you and I gave you a name reflecting the thing that I would call you to do. Isn't God amazing? It's the only job I've had as an adult, <laughs> significant ministry job I've had as an adult these last 16 years. And I can tell you, still to this day, I believe I have the best job in the world. So I love you, Gate City Church, and I cannot be more grateful today to be the executive pastor of this community. And uh, I'm just, I feel it in my heart today. Love you, Hayden. Love you too. Love you, Mike. So I say all that because, wow, we just finished a 21-day fast. Like many in this room, throw your hand up if you took just even one day to fast during this season. People all across the room took some time to be in the prayer room. Throw your hand up if God encountered you in some way over the course of these three weeks. That's amazing. Okay, and as we complete that, we get to go into this message. I didn't get to preach this message a few weeks ago because of the, uh, the, the snowtastrophe that we had. And um, I chose that weekend of all weekends. I did like a camping trip with my family. And so we were out at Lake Lanier at a campsite in an RV and it was just like snow all over the place and it was beautiful. And I was so glad we canceled church because I just got to stay out there. And, um, and it was just a wonderful time. And, and, you know, we didn't preach the message that Sunday, but what's wild is that it feels like today is a divinely appointed day for, for us to preach that, this message. Because today we're going to talk about what it means to be a gatekeeper of the family. And I think in some ways on, at this moment, as I think about 16 years of being here, as I look at us dedicating our children and the things God has been spoken, speaking to me over this past week, as we conclude 21 days of fasting and prayer, we've been asking God to release nine day worship and prayer across our city to make us gatekeepers in the spirit and in every sphere of society. And then we've been asking for the spirit of Elijah, a spirit of reconciliation, repentance, multi-generational, multiracial. It feels like an appointed moment to insert this message into our DNA. And the message I wanna insert is from Psalm 127, and that message, just to put it in a simple phrase for us today that I want to preach and unpack for us, is that this house will only be built to the degree that we build our individual houses and families before God. And I'll get to unpack that a little bit here in a moment. And so first, if you have your notes open, you can actually text uh, whatever phrase, there it is, today's notes, to that number, 844 474 one, three, I would suggest just saving that in your phone. But you can text that, get your, get your notes. And I'm gonna take a moment, I'm gonna review kind of where we've been on this journey, where we're going. Two weeks ago, like I said, well, not two weeks ago, three weeks ago, we discussed keeping charge of the sanctuary of our souls. That was the last time I got to share before our congregation. As the first step to protecting the gates of our home, our church family, and ultimately our city, nation, and nations, Dustin last week talked about what it means to be the gatekeeper over our spiritual family and Chuck got to share an admonishment with us of ways that we can engage in connecting with one another. A real word that he felt that God put on his heart. And we care for the gates of our own life and be gatekeepers of our own life and we're gatekeepers of our spiritual family because ultimately we want to be gatekeepers over the city of Atlanta and we want to open the gates from Atlanta even to the nations of the earth. But I feel like the hinge between what we want to see expressed in our city and in the nations and what we have in our hearts and our spiritual family, where it all ties together is in the place of the family altar. 
And so what I want us to understand and remember and have framed, if you're jumping into this message for the first time or you're a visitor, is that we are priests before God. That's what a gatekeeper is. In 1 Chronicles 9.22, when it describes the role of a gatekeeper, they were basically a specialized priest that guarded the tabernacle later to the temple, and they protected the place of the dwelling of the presence of God. And as I described, my experience of this place, truly this place where we do night and day worship and prayer 24-7 is a dwelling place for the people of God. And it's not because the physical space is special or consecrated. Why was the presence of God so richly dwelling in that room late at night with just one person? It was because he was making his heart a living sacrifice as a priest before the Lord and the fire and presence of God was coming and consuming that offering. It was that exchange between that friend, his name was Nathaniel, up there playing the keys, worshiping his heart out before the Lord. It was his worship before the Lord that was producing an altar of presence. And he as a priest consecrated before the Lord was keeping charge of that sanctuary in the midnight hours. And I got to step into the space that he was creating with his worship and with his sacrifice. And I got to drink a little bit of God's presence. We have this prophetic word, it's almost like a question. Where is the place in our city where a young man or a young woman can come to be delivered of the demonic strongholds of pornography and addiction? Where is that place? You know that there are places where people can be demonized, strip clubs, places of perversion, immorality, darkness, and those places operate 24-7. But here we have a place where if you're tormented and oppressed by the powers of the air and afflicted, you can come even in the middle of the night to be set free in the presence of God. And you have to remember as we consider what it means to be a gatekeeping community that stewards the presence of God, your stewardship of your personal gates and your ability to guard the gate over your community are intrinsically connected. Whatever you let through your gates, you'll have a hard time guarding against in your spiritual family or in your home. I am asking God in a fresh way to consecrate the gates of my eyes and my ears and my mouth and my heart. I love that old song. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, oh my God. And just as we offer these songs, you know, it says that we let the word of God dwell richly in our hearts as we sing and pray and meditate psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It's what Ephesians and Colossians tell us. We consecrate the gates. We cast down vain imaginations that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. And we make our hearts a dwelling place for God's presence. So when we come together corporately, his presence can richly dwell in our midst. That's who we are as gatekeepers. That's the unique charge that we get to steward in this city. And I believe as we open the gates in this sanctuary, the presence of God's gonna pour into the streets. If you've ever read the stories of the Hebrides revival, one of the things that happened is Duncan Campbell and two intercessors, Peggy and Christine Smith, who were sisters, one blind and one deaf, these intercessory women would pray through the night until they saw the breakthrough in the spirit. And then Duncan Campbell would get up and he would preach. And the atmosphere of the presence of God wouldn't just saturate the sanctuary where the word of God was being proclaimed, but it would, it would go out into the neighborhoods and the communities of these small islands off of Scotland. 
And people who would refuse to go to the meetings would say, I cannot get away from the presence of God in my home because there had been a breakthrough in the spiritual atmosphere over the island because of the intercession and the repentance of the people of God. Second Chronicles seven fourteen says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Who did God make the gatekeepers of our city in the spirit? He hasn't made it the the lost and the unbelieving. We are the ones who are the gatekeepers to God's presence. If my people who are called by my name will do these things, then God will respond with heaven from heaven and release revival. Matthew 18, Jesus says, when two or more gather in my name, there I am in their midst. And he describes how the people of God are to deal with sin interpersonally and sin that is within the community. And then he goes on to say, any two or three of you agree on any one thing and it will be done for you. It seems like those three ideas are three separate conversations, but in the mind and heart of God, they're all the same conversation. Because you can only steward the presence of God to the degree that the assembly is consecrated before him. And you can only be consecrated before him to the degree that we take responsibility for one another's lives and we guard the gates. So today in particular, that was all recap. I want to talk about the implications of Psalm 127, and I want to share a little bit about how God prophetically highlighted it to our spiritual family. And there are promises in this Psalm and much wisdom to be gained on how to both grow our natural families and also our spiritual family. The three points I want to talk about today are what it means as a gatekeeper gatekeeper to live in utter dependence, partnering with the Lord. The second point is what it means to live in ruthless trust that lets us enter into rest. And the third point is that we must build family first as the foundation for life and ministry. First Timothy 3, 5 actually says, if a man knows how to rule his own house, then he will have the ability. If he does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? You could paraphrase it this way. If you don't know how to be a gatekeeper in your home, how are you going to be a gatekeeper for your church, for your city, or for the nations? There can be this tendency when we talk about the meta vision, at least for people with my personality type, the meta vision being the broadest and most impactful, right? That there are spiritual gates over the city. We can open those gates for revival, and then that revival is going to touch the nations. That is very exciting, isn't it? Who here feels excited when you hear that vision? You go, I'm in the right place. I want to see the power and presence of God break in in my city. And I want to see unreached peoples reach with the gospel. And that's why I'm here 16 years later. But what I hear the Lord saying to me today is that that vision is only a fantasy if you don't attend first to your own household. And so I want to just tell you just a moment, just to... Pull back the veil on sometimes how God speaks to us in this house, right? We went on this trip to a church in Waco this past week. And as we're there, we, uh, I was with Andrew and Ash and, and Becca, several who are on our senior leadership team. And we went to the Airbnb. And as I'm punching the number into the key box to get the key out of the, the box to get into the Airbnb, the code was 1027. And... Immediately, I felt like this number is significant, but I didn't have any interpretation. And 
somehow Andrew and I had a conversation because we were having to put the key away or whatever, and 1027 stuck out to him also. It was also, I think, maybe the password for the Wi-Fi or something. I don't know exactly how Andrew got it, but that 1027, he goes, I feel like it's Psalm 127. And so we open it up, begin to read it, and it just becomes a theme for the few days that we spent together, this point of natural and spiritual family. Well, interestingly enough, we had another guy join us on the trip. His name was, was Randy. And as I was meeting with Randy and having a conversation with him, I said, yeah, I'm going to preach this upcoming week on gatekeepers of the family. And he goes, oh, I just preached on Psalm 127 last weekend. Let me give the notes to you. So he gives me the notes and I read and it's everything that's in my heart because I had spent that morning preparing for this Sunday, getting ready to preach Psalm 127. And so I can be pretty dense sometimes and dismiss these things as, uh, you know, as, as coincidence. Um, but then on Thursday, Andrew goes to another prayer meeting in our city. And now Thursday is 127. And he started to share with somebody who they had a theme in one of their, this prayer meeting that Andrew went to uh, at a local church. And the theme was everybody was talking about having babies and having children. And in the midst of it, he goes, don't you guys realize today is 127. The Lord's been speaking to us all week about Psalm 127. And I feel like the Lord's saying that's what we should pray into. And when he begins to pray into it, the Lord begins to move in the prayer meeting. So we have these three little confirmations that the Lord's saying Psalm 127. We had the date moved because of the snow day. And I just feel like if I was to put it into a summary, oh, and also Ash, Ash got prayed for there in the staff meeting and, and all the words that he kept getting were about family and children's ministry. And he's our community life pastor. But the word that he kept getting is that you have to pay attention to the children as the community life pastor. The children are the key to the success of the family within y'all's community. He's actually down in children's ministry right now. He said, I'm, ser I'm scheduled to serve in children's ministry. I'm going to come to child dedication. Then I'm going to go serve in the children's ministry. And then we had baby dedication today. So I just see what the Lord is shouting. And my job is to deliver the mail. <laughs> okay. So I want to encourage you this week, as you hear this message, let's hear what the spirit of God is saying through these prophetic winks. We want to make ourselves like little children that we don't dismiss those things, but our hearts are receptive to these things, even though they seem foolish, right? And I want to encourage you, let's take Psalm 127. Let's not just hear me preach it. Let's open it up and meditate on it. Let's talk about it at the dinner table. Let's go into a time with our family in prayer and let's unpack what that means and come to real understanding. So I just want to give it on the upfront. If you go, well, what do you want me to do with what I'm sharing with, with, with you this week? What's the thing you want me to take away? Go to Psalm 127 because it is a word to our spiritual family in this season. Meditate on it and ask the Holy Spirit, what is my takeaway from this psalm? I also felt like the Lord, you know, every single week we do a, uh, an explanation in our announcement videos of who we are. And we haven't finalized this change, but I felt like the Lord spoke it to me in a different way than he has before. Normally what we say is from the place of 24-7 worship and prayer, we do the gospel from our neighbors to the nations and we disciple the whole family to go deep in knowing God. And I felt like the Lord this week, he kind of put a different spin on it. And what he told me was, he said, at Gate City Church, we are building spiritual family that is centered on God's presence, that exalts the worth of Jesus night and day and takes the gospel from our neighborhoods to the nations. And what he was telling me is that what you guys are doing in the outflow of your ministry, it has to begin from the place of spiritual family. So let's jump into Psalm 
127.1, there's three sections, and if you have your Bible, you can open it on your phone, or you can open your analog copy. Psalm 127, there's three sections that I want to highlight for you. I may or may not go through all the segments of the notes, but you have a lot of the things I'm going to share in there for your individual study this week. So Psalm 127 begins, verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early and to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. Verse 3, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior... There were some cute arrows up on the stage today. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Now, some of this language is kind of difficult to understand, and I'm going to unpack it because when you unpack it, it's like, oh, I see exactly what he's talking about. It seemed like the psalmist is actually talking about different things and changing topics, but he's actually conversing around one narrative thread through the entirety of the psalm. So I'm going to give us kind of the big picture for a moment. So Psalm 127.1, I want to just give you the, the headline, is primarily about the building of the family. We have historically used this verse oftentimes to talk about the building of a business or a ministry. But it is predominantly about trusting God for the building of your family. How do I know? It's the context in which all the verses make the most sense. So Psalm 127, lest the Lord builds the house, the idea is the household that you are responsible for, the people labor in vain who want to build it. Meaning your legacy, your generational, the generational passage of wealth and the generational passage of wisdom and knowledge, the house that you are trying to build with you and your spouse and your children, what you are trying to create is going to be vain. It will be a vain effort unless the Lord partners with you in the construction of that house. He mentions the house and then he mentions cities because houses dwell in the midst of cities, especially in these ancient times. The idea is the Lord builds the house and as he builds the house, he builds the city. But the city is, it's vain to guard the city unless the watchman, unless the Lord watches over the city with the watchman. Then he transitions in verse two, this is the second section that we'll get into in a moment. He says that it is vain for you to rise up early, sit up late, and eat the bread of sorrows. Now, what does he mean when he's saying that? He's saying that human toil and human effort is a vain thing unless God blesses and anoints that human effort. In John 15, verse 5, Jesus says, if you abide in me, my word abides in you. If you dwell with me, ask anything you want, and it'll be done from you. And then he goes on to say, but apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's not just talking about ministry service. I feel such compassion sometimes for people that don't have a relationship with the Holy Spirit because I have all kinds of stressful and difficult circumstances in my life and I do not know what I would do if I did not have the Holy Spirit continually whispering to me, guiding me, helping me. I mean, I would literally walk around lost as lost can be. I remember what it was like trying to live my life before I had the Holy Spirit. And I know I do not want to go back to living that way. 
I was filled with confusion and had no peace and had no sense of direction or purpose. And I tried to chart the best course I could for my life. And all it ended me up in was a big mess. And when I finally realized I am a poor leader over my own life was when the grace of God actually became activated because I stopped being self-assertive and began saying, God, I don't know what to do. What do you want me to do? And can I tell you one of the very first things he told me to do that was very risky. I was a business school student and I was in my third year and I had done a, a Christmas internship with Citigroup. And so I had worked at this bank, and in the, if you know anything about business school, you're supposed to do your summer internship with the place you want to get hired the next year. And so I was, what I should have done in my natural wisdom in my final summer before I'm supposed to get a job, is I should have gone to some of my relationships in banking and in business and found the best quality internship I could have found in hopes of getting hired the next year. But instead, I felt the Lord say, make no plans for summer, And then I went to the very last summer retreat as a college student. And I remember while at that summer retreat, I won't tell the whole story, but the Holy Spirit speaks to me. I want you to go work at summer camp. Now, I did not grow up going to summer camp. I had never worked at a summer camp. I'm a little bit bougie, to be honest. (laughs) I spent my summers traveling. I went to China, went to Europe, went to Germany. I I liked culture. I went to museums. I was not into like canoeing and archery and those kinds of things, much less doing canoeing and archery for little kids as a business school student. That did not seem like a very good career move to me at the time. But God spoke to me in such a clear, profound way. And because at that point I'd realized me following my own course for my life had ended up in dead end after dead end. I said, okay, God, I'm going to do it your way. And I remember I got hired at this summer camp and, uh, and I was, the, I was the last person, I'm sorry, I was the second to last person hired, and my now wife was the last person hired. <laughs> and I got filled with the Holy Spirit, I got called to ministry, and I uh, walked away from it with a, 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 someone who's as precious as rubies, as the Proverbs say. <laughs> a man who finds a wife finds a good thing, right? And I just think, what if I had gone my own way in that moment? Instead of going God's way, what would I have missed? Lest the Lord build the house, the laborer labors in vain. Lest the Lord guard the city, the watchman keeps watch in vain. Lest the Lord is the gatekeeper of our city, we have no gatekeeping to be done. I want to highlight this verse, this word vain, because it's used over and over again in, in this psalm. That word is the Hebrew word shav. It means ineffectual or unsuccessful, futile, without real significance, value, or importance, baseless or worthless. I feel like our translation doesn't quite do it justice. We're like, vain kind of sounds like a mild version of, uh, of you know, it's, it's not a great idea. But when, when the Hebrew writer, when Solomon, who is likely the writer of this, says that it is vain for you to apply any effort in anything that God is not in the midst of, he's saying it's ineffectual and worthless. It cannot be done. See, not all work in the kingdom is created equal. Human effort cannot create one ounce of significance in the kingdom of God. I like what Amy Carmichael says about salvation. She says, I can no sooner cause a human soul to be born again than I, than I can create a star. 
I mean, when people talk about salvation being the greatest miracle, there is no doubt today with the six or seven that came forward and said, I want to surrender my life to Jesus. For those that today were born again, those in this room, you observed a miracle. I can remember as a, as a summer camp counselor, I would probably spend more time in a week with those kids than some of their parents spent with them in the whole year. Okay, and I remember those kids in a lot of cases coming in one way and coming out another because they had a transformational encounter with the person of Jesus and they got born again. And immediately their behavior changed. And it wasn't because I was instructing them and teaching them and I was doing such a good job as a summer counselor. They changed because I introduced them to Jesus and something happened in their human spirit. They came alive. We cannot accomplish what we are called to accomplish in our families or in Gate City Church apart from the working of the Holy Spirit day in and day out. Now, does that mean that we are not to labor? No, it says the laborers must labor. It's just vain if the Lord is not in it. You should pray for your children. You should share the gospel with your children. You should encourage them and strengthen them in the things of God. But if God does not ultimately encounter their heart, there is no salvation, no work of salvation that you can wrought in their lives. No matter how much you preach to them, grit your teeth, cry out, there's nothing that you can do in and of your own strength. And some of you in this room that are desperate for the return of a prodigal need to hear today that it is the working of God that will bring that child home. And you can partner with him, but don't make the mistake of thinking you're more zealous than he is. The Lord must build the house. The Lord must watch over the city. Otherwise, it's all shav. We should get a t-shirt that says, without the Lord, it's all shav. I'm going both Hebrew and Latin. Latin motto, nisi dominus frustra. It comes from the very first word of the Psalms. I know you can't tell, but I did take eighth grade Latin. I, I, I was like, I'm gonna do the hardest thing. It's the foundation of other languages. I found out I wasn't very good at languages. So then I moved in high school right to Spanish. I also played violin in middle school. I was a super nerd. No offense to anybody who plays the violin, by the way. I actually said that to somebody this week. I was telling them because they were like, I play the violin. And I was like, oh, yeah, I was so nerdy in high school, whatever, play, middle school, play violin. They're like, what do you mean by that? I was like, nothing. <laughs> nothing. Just talking about me. <laughs> Nisi dominus frustra. Without the Lord, frustration. Without the Lord, this life is just frustration. It's actually the city slogan for the city of Edinburgh. So it's a common expression that comes from this psalm specifically. Without the Lord guarding this city, frustration. Without the Lord building your house, frustration. I won't go into it very long, but in 2 Kings 19.32, we see this amazing passage where the king of Assyria and his his general comes to the city of Jerusalem and they meet with Hezekiah and the elders of the city and they basically threaten the city and they say, where's the protection of your God? And they're so, uh, so flagrant in, in claiming that God is not faithful that they offend the Lord. And the Lord actually, and Hezekiah cries out to God for God's deliverance from this Assyrian army. And Isaiah comes and he actually 
gives this prophecy and he says that the king of Assyrians generally says, by the way he came, he will return. He will not enter the city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and the sake of David, my servant. And it says that night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all dead bodies. <laughs> Hezekiah understood that he had insufficient military strength to protect the city and he called upon the Lord. See, one of the problems and dangers that causes me to fear for our nation is that I think in many ways we have put our confidence on our own military might and not put our confidence in the Lord. From the White House to the courthouse to the mayor's office, do we believe without the Lord frustration? Or do we believe in our heart of hearts we're the greatest nation in the earth, divine destiny. This is what God has ordained is for us to be the most powerful military, most powerful economy. And there's no way that we're going to fall from that position. Which do you think is more true in the American consciousness? If it's the latter of what I just described, we need to repent. Because that's not confidence in God to guard the city. That's confidence in human pride and arrogance. I'm not suggesting we shouldn't love our nation. We should love our nation. The most loving thing that we can do for our nation is declare our nation is nothing without the Lord. Our church is nothing without the Lord. Our city is nothing without the Lord. Our families are nothing without the Lord. I am nothing without the Lord. I know some of that sounds foundational, like, yeah, I've heard that, check that box. But do we, in our heart of hearts, do we operate more in human effort and energy in our job and our parenting than we do in dependency upon God? Do we wake up in the mornings convinced, without you, Lord, today, I can't make it through? And if you're having a hard time and God is convincing you of that truth, consider it a gift. If your circumstances are pressing you into a place of dependence that you've never felt before, it's the kindest thing God could do for you. I feel like God's giving me that gift in this season. Hallelujah. And all I can say is thank you, Lord, for tearing down my self-confidence and arrogance and giving me a job that I can't do in my own strength. So I want to touch on, it's just really precious, actually, this idea about it's vain for you to stay up late. It's vain for you to rise early. Maybe everybody in here has had a season where it's like you're just grinding and you're staying up late. I stayed up late. I, my wife is out of town the last three days. So these sermon notes got in just right at the, I had to put my kids to bed about 10 p.m. And from 10 p.m. to 1230 last night, this message got completed. I was staying up late, grinding with the Lord, but it was with the Lord, praise God. I'm like, without the Lord, everything is frustration. Like It's true. And then it talks about eating the bread of sorrows, which means you have this intense toil, and as you, as you toil, the fruit of your toil is something that's a sorrowful experience, okay? And he's describing a life... Uh, Spurgeon actually cites this other guy, Menton, and I just like this quote. 
Let's see what page is this. Top of page seven. It's the bread of sorrows is living a life of misery and labors, fretting at your disappointment, eaten up with envy at the advancement of others, afflicted over much loss and wrong. There is no end of all their labors. And that's the idea of the bread of sorrows. But then Solomon, if Solomon indeed wrote this psalm, says something pretty cool. He says, for so he gives his beloved sleep. He gives the ones, the ones that are resting in the love of God, you don't have to grind it out on your own. You have a father in heaven. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow and reap. Look at the flowers of the field. They're not worried about how they're going to be dressed. They're dressed finer than Solomon. I'm claiming that dressed finer than Solomon promise for myself these days. We trust the Lord and the Lord adds to us what we cannot get in the labor of our own strength. And that's what Solomon's pointing to when he said he gives his beloved sleep. He gives you sleep, rest from that kind of labor. So we partner with God in the guarding of the house and the guarding of the city. And then from that place, we practice ruthless trust by saying, I'm gonna offer my best effort, but I know in every situation, my best effort will be insufficient. Ouch! So what you're telling him is, God sets me up into situations where obedience requires that I try, and yet in that trying, I risk failure because I can't do the job in my own strength. Exactly, welcome to Christianity. See, natural leadership says, count the cost and make sure you have what it takes to finish the job before you start. Spiritual leadership says, show up knowing that you have a deficiency, knowing you don't have enough fishes and loaves to feed the multitude. And when you do the math, you go, we don't have enough money, the disciples said. It's three months, three months of wages couldn't feed all the people that are here. And Jesus says, well, what do we have in hand? What do you have in your hand, disciples? And if you hear a commandment from the Lord that comes from heaven, you can trust that what you have in hand, he'll make sufficient. And so he doesn't grumble about it. He blesses it and gives it out. And when he distributes it, it's enough to feed everybody. That's spiritual leadership. And what I love about that story is it says they collected 12 baskets full. And I remember I was pondering the 12 baskets. I was like, why is it 12 baskets? And then I realized each disciple probably had a basket, right? And so it wasn't that 12 was significant, it was that they gave everything out and they got 100% back. Imagine being the disciple on that day, you're like, okay, we're gonna give it all out, give it all out, give it all out, give it all out, and then you look down and the, <laughs> the thing hasn't, it's somehow like when you, I would be like so trying to catch that miracle, like, I'm not even going to go into this, but I'll just share this to blow your mind a little bit. My sister-in-law, who is, she is not like, a, she is a very grounded, she's an anesthetician, so she's in the medical field. She's, a, you know, a nurse practitioner, very scientifically minded, but she went to South Africa on a missions trip, and they wanted to do a party to, uh, dis, to they wanted to do a party to thank the people that had hosted them. And so the one restaurant that is in a lot of these places was uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken. And that's like the nicest restaurant in the town they went to. So they went and got a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken for the, the few people that had hosted them. Well, she said when word got out that they were throwing a goodbye meal and that the Westerners had bought food, like the whole town shows up. And so they just start giving out the chicken. And she was the person in charge of distributing it. 
and they just prayed that it would be enough. And you know, everybody got some Kentucky fried chicken that day. And I was just like, cause I, I, I have not seen that miracle myself, but I was like, explain it to me. Like, did you just keep reaching in the bucket? And there was just, they kept being chicken. And I thought that kind of stuff only worked with Chick-fil-A cause that's God's chicken. I don't understand the Kentucky fried chicken. It was confusing to me. But my point is those miracles teach us principles in the kingdom which is when we don't have enough, God shows up. And oftentimes he calls us into situations to lead when we don't have enough. We don't have what it takes. Why would you put me in a situation where you don't have what it takes? So you can learn the lesson, help you out, somebody. You don't have what it takes. That's a word for somebody in here. You've been telling yourself, I have what it takes, I have what it takes, I have what it takes. The lesson that God's been actually trying to teach you is you don't have what it takes. But he does. Whoever's clapping is not in that situation (laughs) right now. They're like, amen for somebody else. The phrase, he gives his beloved sleep. Now what's interesting is, I talked a little bit about my name today. Does anyone remember what Solomon's name was? His name that Nathan the prophet gave him was Jedidiah, which means God's darling or beloved of the Lord. And so Solomon, when he says he gives his beloved sleep, he actually inserts a variation of his own name into the psalm. It reminds me of John the beloved apostle uh, who actually references himself in his own epistle, John 21, 20. Peter's in this moment with Jesus where he's going to be restored and he turns around and sees John following them. You know, there's a little sibling rivalry going on between Peter and John. Jesus having this intimate moment with Peter. Do you love me? Peter's like, I do love you, Lord. And John just puts it in here. He goes, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. (laughs) Just in case for all history, y'all are wondering, right? But there's this place where we enter into rest in our identity and confidence that we are the Lord's beloved. And from that place, we can enter into sweetness of sleep and not toil and labor. We can trust that God is the new, I believe that God is good and he is going to do good by me. And from that place, our souls have rest. Hallelujah. So if we're talking about building our family, right? We partner with God and we know we cannot do anything apart from him. And we practice ruthless trust And from that place of trusting in the Lord, we see him come through on our behalf and give us rest. So the last point I want to make as we begin to close is a gatekeeper prioritizes building the spiritual family. This is verse three through five. Behold, children are a heritage or an inheritance from the Lord. I love that phrase inheritance because an inheritance is something that you get freely by association and relationship. If you've ever received an inheritance, you know there's no work involved in an inheritance. You just show up and because you're the offspring of the one who is bequeathing it to you, you receive freely. And so what the Lord is saying is for those that are his, right, you can receive an inheritance from the Lord and that is the fruit of the womb. Children, they're a gift from God. In many ways, our culture doesn't think that way anymore, but kingdom culture is that way. 
Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. And happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. There's no greater joy for me. My, my, <laughs> my middle daughter just started to be able, we gave her a little eye, eye, eye touch. And don't judge me for this, all right, y'all. But I gave her an eye touch. She's seven. Okay, yes, I know. That's a little young. But, but, she, uh, but the benefit of it now is she's begun texting me, which is good for her learning to spell. Okay. And, <laughs> and so she's begun texting me, but she's just sending me these sweet little texts like, hi, dad. And I'm like, that was the first text I got from her because her mother set it up for me when I wasn't home. I didn't know this was necessarily going to happen. But then midway through my day, I, I see her new email account, and she texts me from her device. She says, hi, Dad. And I say, hi, Kessid. And she says, I love you. And I was like, what do you want, a pony, kitty? <laughs> Just I want to give something to you right now. Just name it. Right now is the moment. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. And they shall not be ashamed, but will speak with their enemies in the gates. So I'm talking about this metaphor of arrows. If you are tracking in the notes, uh, this point is in the notes at the midpoint of page eight. Use this metaphor of arrows in the hand of a warrior. And one of the commentators I read delineated these seven points of what is distinct in the metaphor of an arrow, and I just, I like these seven points, so I just put them right in the notes. First, our offspring are like arrows in that they must be carefully shaped and formed. They must be guided with skill and strength. They must be given care or they will not fly straight. They must be aimed and given direction. They will not find direction on their own. They are in some respects only launched once in that transition from adolescence to adulthood. And each arrow is unique. And I'll add that Dustin worked in when we were discussing this beforehand, a Marvel reference. And he said, you know, if you've seen that show Hawkeye, which is all about the Marvel character that has no superpowers, but he's able to shoot cool arrows, right? And they, they fashion all the arrows, different trick arrows, and each arrow is unique. And I thought that was a pretty good insight. I feel like each of my little arrows is unique in the violence that they're going to do to the kingdom of darkness. Their calling and assignment and how God has uniquely crafted them is unique. They're an extension of the warrior mother, the warrior father's strength and accomplishment. And they have potential for either much good or if used wrongly or abused, much harm. Now to transition to talking about natural relationships to spiritual relationships as we close, we just recognize not every relationship within spiritual family is the same. And I think there's a lot of pain and confusion that sometimes come when we start to talk about spiritual family because some may never have had a good example of a natural or spiritual father. Some people in here, your hardest relationships are the relationships you had with your parents. Some of you may never have had 
a natural or spiritual mother that was exemplary and you'd say, I want what is present in their lives. And that's heartbreaking. That can be extremely challenging. And so a lot of times the hunger for that causes us in the context of church, when we start to talk about spiritual family, there's different responses. Some people go, shields up, no way, I don't want that. Everything I've experienced of that has been negative. Get me as far away from that as possible. Please don't even call me a part of the spiritual family. And then other people go, I'm so hungry and so desperate for that. I will idolize the role of a spiritual leader in my life and actually they will supplant the role of God and these two ditches are ones that cause distortion and and an inability to relate effectively with spiritual leadership and something that's important we had this discussion this week is to understand not every relationship will be the highest and deepest relationship but we can have all kinds of different kinds of relationship that add value to our lives So there are four that I put here in the notes that I've experienced in my own life and have offered to others in different seasons. And guess what? Just like with natural parenting with your kids, you know, sometimes something starts out with a leadership relationship and transitions to a peer relationship. Not everything remains the same through every season, but I think having these four illustrated can be super helpful. The first one is just shepherding, pastoring, leading. And that relationship, I can have that relationship with a lot of different people. You can have discipleship relationships with a lot of different people, a group of maybe as many as 10 or 15. You might have some relation. Jesus had 12 that he was discipling and leading. You could have people that you're professionally mentoring. That's a little bit deeper relationship. Jesus had his three disciples that were an inner circle even among the 12. You can have those that you're spiritually fathering or mothering where you're offering the wisdom that you've accumulated over your life. And we need, God bless them, the gray hairs in the room. My wife and I are starting to get a little gray hair ourselves. We're becoming the gray hairs in the room, unfortunately at 38, probably because of some of the parenting that we've done up to this point. (laughs) Not with any of y'all though, aren't talking about our own kids. And then you have the natural fathering and mothering of natural children. And in some places, God will actually call you to step in and offer a natural blessing, natural protection, have people live in your home, be the presence of a natural mother or father to someone who's never had one. And there are many in our community who have done that. And so I wanna return as we close here to the pop culture example of Hawkeye. And I wanna talk about something that actually is beautiful from that story that really touched me in our briefing today. If you watch this series, you realize there's a character named Kate Bishop. And Kate Bishop in the opening scene, she actually sees Hawkeye in this battle for New York. Hawkeye is the one Avenger hero that doesn't have any superpowers. He just has the ability to shoot arrows. And she's inspired by his example and she becomes an expert archer herself. And faithfully in the story of the the show, their lives intersect again and he becomes becomes a mentor to her and she plays a redemptive role in his life and he plays this mentorship role in her life. How many of you know in great stories, you always look in the conclusion of the story to the payoff, the thing that makes you weep, the thing that strikes the chord in the human heart. And what was great about this show that I think makes it worth watching is the unique payoff that was in this show. In a romance, the payoff of the story is when the couple finally gets together, they've worked through the problems and they're running through the airport and they embrace and you're like, oh, all the tension is resolved and the people we wanted to see get together finally get together. All throughout this mentorship relationship, there's tension between Kate and, uh, and Barton, right? And in the final scene, 
he's going home because the whole time he's, he's, he's been on a quest to resolve the issue so his family could be safe and he could go home for Christmas. And as he's pulling up to the house, you have this question in your mind, did Kate get invited home with him? Because she'd been on this adventure with him, but the question was, is she gonna be accepted as a daughter? And the, and the writers of the story know that that's the payoff, so they wait till the very last moment to show she did come home with him, she did get to meet his wife, she did get welcomed into the family, and your heart goes, oh, thank goodness. It would have been such a miss if they had this amazing relationship, but it never ultimately got fulfilled. Anybody who watched the show knows what I'm talking about, right? And maybe you didn't even realize what was getting struck in you, but it's that longing for family. And every human being has that within them. That's why these shows work. But you as the people of God know the true answer. It's not through the mentorship relationship with some superhero that we're able to find our place in the world. It's actually through finding our place of home and rest among the people of God. And that can be the satisfaction of that longing and that desire can be found in that relationship where we finally come home to rest among a people where we can be free to be a son or a daughter of God. We can be free to be a father or a mother to extend love and to be received in love, which is the essence of being human. And so in conclusion, this is the very last portion. It says, when you enter into this, let me read it to us so we can land it just right. When you enter into this, the happy man who has the quiver full says they'll not be ashamed. They'll speak with their enemies in the gate. Just wanna give a call to our church seeking to be gatekeepers. The gates speak of two places. They speak of the places of influence because it was the, the court of the ancient city was actually the gate where the elders would gather to settle disputes. And it says, a man who can show up with his tribe of sons and daughters has nothing to fear in the moment of judicial contending. In that moment, a man or a woman who has a tribe that has his back can be confident to be examined. And he can also, it says, speak with their enemies in the gates, meaning that when the enemy, the spiritual enemy, the accusations of life, the challenges come, that man or woman is no longer standing alone because they've raised up spiritual sons and daughters, they've raised up natural sons and daughters, and they're actually stand together as one united tribe against the pressure of the culture, against the demonic opposition, against the circumstances in life that would seek to destroy you and take you out. We need each other as family, as spiritual family and as natural family, and our success in our assignment as before God to build five houses of prayer, to have thousands of intercessory missionaries, to pull down the strongholds over the city of Atlanta and see mass revival. The ability to move into that destiny is only as strong as our families. Our ability to contend with the enemy in the gates of this city is only as strong as the tribe we bring to the party. And so I want to say to you, Gate City Church, I have your back. Do you have mine? I want to go to war with this tribe in purity and in righteousness and in intercession and in raising our kids. And I want to lay hands when we do baby dedications. And I want to think in my mind, I am responsible for the destiny and the maturity of this child as a support to this parent. And I'm going to raise them up in the spirit and I'm going to pray for them. 
One of our closest families is the Filetti family. Our kids go to school together. I carpool with their kids every day. I wanna have, we can't have that with every relationship, but for the ones that God has given, I wanna think about their children like I think about my children. And if we do this together, there is no enemy that we will not be able to stand together against. Let's stand. I actually want us to enter into a moment, the invitation that I sense from the Lord is that there are some who have been testing the waters on this idea of family. And you have been considering the risk and the reward of going all in on your heart of what it means. Because there is a price associated with beginning to actually spiritually mother and father people. There's a price associated with opening your heart and vulnerability to be a child, to be, to be one that that relates to someone in that way. And maybe there's a deep pain. Maybe that's never been offered to you before and you don't know what it could look like. I wanna invite us to open our hearts to saying, I'm going to begin to let God instruct me on what it means to be a part of a family. And for those most resistant to that idea today, I wanna pray for you. I wanna pray for you to be able to have ruthless trust in the Lord. I wanna pray for you to be able to believe that God is the one that ultimately would tend to your house and to your family. And I want you to believe with me today that we would be a house of sons and daughters knit together in love before our heavenly father. So if you wanna to respond to that, you want someone to pray for you. If you feel like you're carrying wounding from your parents that constantly keeps you on the outside of spiritual family, I want us to invite you forward, I wanna pray for you. And Lord, even as those right now, just in vulnerability, move to the front, Lord, and offer a moment of humility before you to say, God, I want to be embraced as a family. God, I, I pray that you would meet the deep longing in their hearts. I pray that you would put mothers and fathers around them, leaders and mentors. And I pray the very longings of their heart would be met let's have some of our ministry team just come forward, just lay hands on each of these and just begin to pray for God to release that spirit and power of Elijah. That mindset that we can have a home and we can be a part of a family. Lord, we pray, make us gatekeepers of our family that open the gates of this city. In Jesus' name, amen.